We turn in God's inspired word this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. We read together the first 10 verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that she may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So far we read from Holy Scripture this morning, And the text to which I call your attention is the verses 6 through 8 of 1 Peter 2. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you who have a rather well-developed understanding or knowledge of the Bible recognize that this section sets forth a profound scriptural truth. It's a truth which sets apart Reformed churches, though sad to say in our day only a small remnant of Reformed churches, from most other churches on the face of the earth. And I refer to the truth of sovereign predestination, election, and reprobation. 
We must consider that truth in our treatment of this passage, but we also have here the blessed gospel of our salvation. Christ is set before us here. He's set before us as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and that figure is connected with the preceding verses as indicated by the wherefore with which our text begins. The apostle has been speaking to those who have been born again out of incorruptible seed by the word of God. And in the opening verses of this chapter, he admonished them to to desire the sincere milk of the word the pure, wholesome preaching of the gospel, that same admonition comes to us today. We are called to desire that word preach, to nurture our Christian life so that that desire increases and thereby to grow in the faith which is our salvation. But positively, The consequence of that increasing desire for God's word and that nourishment received from Christ through preaching is that we are built up a spiritual house. In coming to Christ through the preaching, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That picture of a spiritual house becomes now the important figure in the context which follows. That house is not merely a house such as you and I might live in. This is a spiritual house. A house suitable to the nature of God, who is a spirit. And as is evident from the immediately following reference to an holy priesthood, this spiritual house is the temple in which God dwells. But unlike the temple built by Solomon in the Old Testament, a temple built by the hands of men out of specific building materials, in this text, the temple and the people are identified. It is indeed a structure formed with many different parts, but this building is not a mere structure because it's living. So it's not a pile of bricks, it's an organism, a living organism. And the stones that make up this building are living stones, joined to the cornerstone by faith, thus forming a spiritual priesthood. You understand then that what is pictured here is the church, in which every member has his or her own significant place and function, and all the parts together form or express the thought of the architect who is God himself. This spiritual house serves to 
reveal, reflect his, his eternal purpose to reveal his own glory. From eternity, God has determined the dimensions, the frame, the materials of this house right down to the last beautiful stone. He has determined this present world to serve this work as well as every piece of the scaffolding necessary for the construction of this superstructure. The builder is God as well. In Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 3, verse 3, and the stones that make up this building are all living stones, each receiving life from the stone who is Christ. He is the one through whom our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. Christ is the fountain of our spiritual life in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 21. Christ is the one ordained by God to be the head of the body, the church, the chief cornerstone upon which the church is built. He is the one in whom God's covenant is realized with his people. Christ is the central figure of this spiritual house that in all things he might have the preeminence, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, verses 15 and following. On account of the paramount importance of Christ and his relationship to these living stones that make up the church of God, the Holy Spirit would reveal more concerning that cornerstone and its relationship to the other living stones. So I call your attention this morning to the chief cornerstone. As contained in the scripture, embraced by faith, and rejected in disobedience. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. The truth set forth in these verses is not merely an opinion of the Apostle Peter, but it's a truth that runs like a golden thread through the whole Bible. That's why we are commanded to search the scriptures, as Jesus said in John 5, verse 39, For the scriptures are they, said he, which testify of me. When you search the scriptures you will find that this spiritual house built with living stones upon the precious cornerstone who is Christ was the purpose of God from eternity. By the scripture, the apostle refers, first of all, to the Old Testament scriptures. And for that reason, we begin there. The laying laying of that cornerstone as God's purpose was revealed already in Paradise the First after the fall. Although God did not speak specifically of 
the cornerstone. He spoke of the Messiah. He spoke the gospel to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, verse 15. It was his purpose to send a seed, a savior, from the line of the woman, the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. That gospel was no different from that which was being proclaimed now by the Apostle Peter. That gospel did not announce the salvation of all men. That gospel proclamation said nothing about God desiring to save all men. That gospel was an antithetical proclamation. It spoke of salvation to Adam and Eve and their elect seed, salvation in Christ. But it also spoke of condemnation and damnation to the seed of the serpent and all his spiritual children. That coming Messiah, identified in our text as the chief cornerstone, will crush the head of the serpent, thus destroying the serpent and all who belong to him. That same gospel of salvation was proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets throughout the Old Testament in ever clearer fashion according to God's purpose. When Peter refers to the Old Testament, he undoubtedly has in mind two passages in particular. Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28. In Psalm 118, the prophet speaks prophetically of the coming of the Messiah, concluding with these words, verses 21 and following, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. But the apostle quotes more directly from Isaiah 28, verse 16. There we find not just the word of the prophet Isaiah, but the very word of the Lord Jehovah. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, that he that believeth shall not make haste, or as the New Testament puts that last phrase, shall not be ashamed. Those who believe on that cornerstone shall not be like one who runs here and there worrying with no confidence about what is to come, but he or she believes with a peace that passes all human understanding. Understand well, Jehovah gives this word of promise to his people who suffer in the midst of an apostate church. That was the context in the prophecy of Isaiah. Wayward Israel. Through the mouth of Isaiah, Jehovah speaks a wonderful word of comfort in the midst of judgment and sorrow. 
there's a precious cornerstone laid in Zion. And those who are established on that cornerstone shall never be confounded. Christ is the cornerstone upon which the church has her salvation. That is the chief truth of scripture. Christ revealed as the chief cornerstone. And that truth continues to find development also in the New Testament, as we shall have occasion to see in the text later. The Apostle has much to say about Christ as that chief cornerstone. You notice, first of all, he says that that cornerstone is elect. Elect. Purposely chosen to serve as the cornerstone. That cornerstone was quite different from our merely decorative cornerstones today. The chief cornerstone was the starting point in the construction of a building. It was the essential, indispensable foundation stone which served to to bring the whole building together and upon which the entire structure rested. Which is to say, in the application of this figure, the whole foundation and superstructure of the church rests upon this chief cornerstone identified in Ephesians 2 verse 20 as Jesus Christ himself. He is the cornerstone that unites all his people into one everlasting tabernacle, temple. And to that end and purpose, Christ is elect. So we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is before all things, chosen by God to be the chief cornerstone, who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. That's Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. God from eternity determined the building, which is the universal church. He designed that building to be built upon this particular chief cornerstone. The cornerstone first. Then the, each stone in its own position marked out by God himself, his eternal decree. And Christ alone is fit, therefore, for the work of uniting and building, binding together the stones of this building. Christ is the only one who holds the church together 
For other foundation hath no man laid than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. God alone chooses the cornerstone. And therefore this cornerstone is precious. It's precious in God's sight, being the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his essence. Hebrews 1, verse 3. There is no stone in all the world like this one. This stone came as God in the flesh, that he might be that everlasting cornerstone, one that would never decay and crumble. He he is also man in order to be suitable to the nature of those stones which were chosen by God to make up that building. There's not a single mark, not a single blemish on this cornerstone. And it sparkles with the glory of the triune God. Christ is held in honor by God himself. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Colossians 1 verse 19. This stone, chosen by God and precious, he has laid as the chief cornerstone in Zion. In the heart of that covenant land, in Zion, where was Jerusalem and the temple and the holy of holies, where God himself dwelt with his people, Christ was the focal point. And today, in the fullness of time, When all that Zion represented has seen its fulfillment, God dwells with his people in Christ. In Christ. Notice this is all of God. Not only is the plan of the building sovereignly determined, but the building itself is sovereignly fashioned around that chief cornerstone. There's nothing here of man. It's all of God. The church is God's church. Chosen. Each stone chosen to fit each in his own and her own special place. United to that chief cornerstone. All through the types and shadows and ceremonies and prophecies of the Old Testament. God revealed himself as laying that precious stone. And he realized that purpose in the fullness of time when his only begotten son became flesh and dwelt among us to fulfill God's purpose in drawing all his own unto himself. This Christ, this elect and precious cornerstone, as revealed in the scriptures, as preached in the gospel in such a way that those who might see him show their reaction to him. This is how God is pleased to build upon that elect and precious cornerstone. The fact that God himself sets that cornerstone 
shows that it is immovable. He's pleased to build upon it for sure, but at the same time, one is quite able to kick against that stone, but he's not able to budge it. The wrecking balls of hell cannot budge this stone a fraction of an inch. It might be beaten upon by hurricane-strength winds. Tons of dynamite might be detonated against it. It stands unmoved. God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion, and for that reason it follows He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Obviously, the inspired apostle now changes the figure a little, no longer speaking about building, but believing. This cornerstone is rested upon by faith. To believe on him is to know him and to love him as God's elect cornerstone of the church and to put all our confidence in him for our salvation. In Christ alone is our redemption, our righteousness before God, our deliverance from sin and death. In him alone is everlasting life and glory. The one who believes on him has knowledge of him. Not merely a lifeless, intellectual knowledge acquired by reading and studying the Bible and other religious works abstractly as if, as if a matter of literature. But the one who believes has a spiritual knowledge. A knowledge that's rooted in the heart. That heart which according to the last part of 1 Peter 1, has been regenerated by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The knowledge of faith, therefore, is the knowledge of love. The knowledge of relationship. It's a knowledge which causes us to hunger and thirst after Christ as the one who alone is able to deliver us from the power of sin and death. It's a knowledge that compels us to trust in him and to receive all his benefits. But this act of believing includes another element, an element that's actually on the foreground in this text, and that is the element of confidence. When a man or woman believes... He or she no longer places confidence in self. The one who believes on this chief cornerstone is one who puts all his confidence on this immovable rock who is Christ. When you believe, then you trust with the knowledge of faith that for Christ's sake, God has declared you righteous forever and will never leave you nor forsake you. Jehovah's cornerstone can never fail those stones set upon him. 
though the law of God accuses us and Satan himself testifies against us, yet we may be assured that our salvation in Christ shall certainly be made complete. The text emphasizes we who believe on him shall never be ashamed. It's not possible to capture, really, the emphasis of this statement in the English language. He who believes on him, as close as we can put it, shall never, no, not ever, be ashamed. Through faith. Our souls are established on that immovable cornerstone. Truly it is, as we sang earlier from Psalm 125, they that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. In the midst of all the fierce attacks upon the children of God, their confession is this. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord, Jehovah, is round about his people from henceforth even forever. Seeing then the strength of that mighty cornerstone, we must ask ourselves the question, should we then choose to build upon the sand? Shall we place our confidence in the things of this earth or in our own mental and physical abilities? All other relationships are dissolved, either by circumstances or by death. But the one union between the living stones and that chief cornerstone can never be dissolved. The word of the Lord hath spoken it. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Because this union is rooted in God's eternal and unchangeable decree of election in Christ. The chief cornerstone is elect and all the living stones in him. And that election in Christ is sure because the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33, verse 11. That truth of God's sovereign election is the comfort of this text for all who believe. But it is also that power behind our spiritual sight by which we see the preciousness of that cornerstone. This stone is not only precious to God, who chose it, but its preciousness is seen by all you who believe. Just as a a skillful jeweler examines a precious stone, and finds it of great value. So God has given us to see the preciousness of this cornerstone. Though 
everything else be taken from us. As long as we possess this jewel, we are rich indeed. But I say again, the preciousness of this stone is only seen through the eyes of faith. That stone doesn't look precious if we're only looking at the things that are seen. Then you run into all kinds of troubled thinking, as did Asaph in Psalm 73, before God brought him again to the temple. When you look at all the troubles we face as Christians, the struggles and the suffering, even when you consider how mild those troubles are compared to the persecution that God's people faced in Peter's day and and face in some places today, that stone doesn't look precious. It looks like a thorn. If, If all you're focused on is things earthly. The true estimate of that stone cannot be seen through eyes of darkness. The eyes of light must be given us by God himself in order for that preciousness of that stone to be visible to us. For although that stone is and always has been exceeding beautiful, faith alone discerns the value of that stone. Faith alone sees the importance, the preciousness of that chief cornerstone of our salvation. So in the light of faith, Christ reflects all his glorious virtues, the glorious virtues of the triune God, and unites us to himself. He's precious, more precious than anyone or anything known or conceived. What more can we say of him who died that we might never die? What more can we say of him who endured all the sufferings of God's infinite wrath toward us that we might be united to him and enjoy his fellowship forevermore? He's our everything. Shall we dishonor him by the way we live? God forbid. Christ is precious. And as your faith grows under the preaching of the gospel, he appears more precious, too. But as the text makes clear, this chief cornerstone has a twofold purpose. It's not only a precious stone of salvation to those who believe, but it is also a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to all those who reject it in disobedience. This cornerstone, therefore, affects not only believers, but also the unbelieving. Who are those unbelieving? They are those who know not the Lord with the spiritual knowledge of faith. They might know him intellectually. They might even be well-read 
in the works of many theologians, they might be more articulate in their speech about theology than you and I are. But theirs is a head knowledge, not a heart knowledge. They are ones who proudly say, we see to whom the Lord said, John 9, verse 41, therefore your sin remaineth. They think they see. But more, no matter the range of their intellectual knowledge about Christ, and some might know much, others very little, the unbelieving refuse to place their confidence in him. They might join a church, even one that they know intellectually is true to the scriptures, but they are never more than stones that lie near the foundation. They're not built upon it. Jesus himself identified some of those unbelievers when he spoke the parable of the wicked husbandman in Matthew 21 and Mark 12. They are those who willfully reject the one sent by the owner of the vineyard. They are those whom the Lord of the vineyard will come to destroy with the word of his power. And do you know what we read immediately following the account of that parable? Jesus says, and I quote now from Mark 12, verses 10 and 11. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you not ever read that, Jesus said? And then we read that the scribes and Pharisees, the self-righteous members of the outward church, sought to lay hold of Jesus, but feared the people because they knew he had spoken about them. They knew the laws of God. Why, they were experts at applying those laws to others. But they were quick to point the finger to avoid true repentance themselves. To them belonged the oracles of God. But they refused to put their trust in him, choosing rather to put their confidence in their own self-righteousness and their own name. Those unbelievers are further described in our text, verse 7, as builders. They're building a house. Not a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, but they're building a house fit for their own carnal hopes and desires, they desire 
to build a kingdom for their own pleasure and glory. Christ doesn't fit into their plans. These unbelievers can't avoid Christ. They're put in a position where they have to make a decision concerning him, and they do. They reject him. The unbelieving builders take this cornerstone, they look at it, they consider it, and they kick against it. Even though it's immovable, in their own minds they shove it aside as worthless. The precious stone is rejected. The fulfillment of those Old Testament words of prophecy was seen when the unbelieving nailed Jesus to the cross. But that fulfillment continues today with those who crucify the Son of God afresh. Many continue to reject him as if he doesn't even exist building their own little kingdoms on the sand of their own depravity. And they do so even though that cornerstone that was once crucified arose and is exalted at the right hand of God and become the head of the corner. Psalm 2 tells us, He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Who can stand against him? He mocks them for the folly of their unbelief. Because the purpose of the sovereign Lord shall never be frustrated. Those who believe on him shall never be ashamed. And then the text calls attention to the most profound truth of all. That elect cornerstone, sovereignly fashioned by God himself, that elect cornerstone itself serves to confound the unbelieving. That is Christ himself trips up those who are not built upon him by faith. To the unbelieving, that stone, that cornerstone, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They hit it and they trip over it and curse it. But it kills them. That cornerstone projects out from the surface in such a way that the blind stumble over it and fall headlong to their destruction. It's a rock of offense. Literally, the trigger of a trap. When the unbeliever kicks against this stone, the jaws of death slam upon him. That's true even today. Clearly, Jesus Christ was a rock of offense to the Jews when he lived on this earth. 
But the question remains, how is Christ still a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling to the unbelieving? And the answer is, by his word. That's the power of the word of God, people of God. They stumble at the word. That word is the word of Christ, which comes through the preaching of the gospel. It's true that the ungodly who do not hear the preaching of the gospel are nevertheless appointed to wrath. That's Romans 1, verses 18 and following. But the text speaks of the word men hear in the preaching of the gospel, the same word referred to in verse 2 as that which we are called to desire, that word is a hardening power in its own right. Always the faithful preaching of the word serves a twofold purpose. It is, to use the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, a savor of life unto life, and of death unto death. That word preach not only works faith in the elect, but on the other hand, through that word, God hardens the unbelieving. Through the same stone, the chief cornerstone, the sovereign God accomplishes all his good pleasure, saving and hardening. Now notice carefully, the text is speaking of those who are either members of the church institute or come into contact with it. It includes people from every age who have heard that word, and refuse to believe. That includes the present age. Some hear it once, but many sit under it week after week, even year after year. Many that hear that preaching of the gospel shall mourn the day that they heard it because they stumbled at that word to their everlasting damnation. They heard that word, but they refused to examine their own spiritual condition in the light of that word and instead imagined falsely that they had already attained. Of course I'm a Christian. The children of Abraham are we, said the Pharisees. But the truth is, when they heard that word, they neither listened to it with application to themselves, nor lived in thankfulness to it. Instead, they considered it foolishness, or they twisted that word to fit their own preconceived deceptions and desires. They fitted that word 
to the foundation of their own lust rather than fitting their lives to the foundation of God's truth. And in their rejection of the cornerstone, it falls upon them and crushes them. We read in Jeremiah 29, verse 23, verse 29, Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? But the text also states that in their stumbling at the word, they are at the same time being disobedient. So their unbelief is not merely a matter of ignorance, but of disobedience. It's rebellion against the living God. They saw that stone. They examined it. And when it didn't fit into their own sinful scheme, they cast it aside. That's the rejection of That's the reaction of the reprobate to the word. You see, the wicked, according to this text, shall be damned on the basis of their own sin. Their disobedience to the word of the living God. And so God will be seen as righteous in their damnation. And how is it that so many reject him and stumble at the word? Listen to the text. Humble yourselves before the clear teaching of the Bible. The Spirit of God tells us in five words, whereunto also they were appointed. That text is so clear it cannot be misunderstood. It's rejected by many, but it cannot be misunderstood. The meaning is that God has set certain people in a position where they stumble at his word. He places them, he appoints them with a view to their stumbling to bring about his purpose his eternal purpose, that they should do so. The righteous and holy God stands behind their rejection of that stone and their stumbling over that stone to their own destruction. Not only election, but reprobation is of the Lord. The immediate reaction to this teaching is one of vehement opposition by almost all Christendom. There are many who will speak of the sovereignty of God until you get to this doctrine. Reprobation, they will utterly reject and repudiate. Nevertheless, the doctrine of reprobation is the clear teaching of Scripture 
And maintaining this truth is of utmost importance because the issue at stake is nothing less than the absolute sovereignty of God. And if God is not sovereign, we have no gospel to preach. We must bow before the scriptures also in this. Our first duty is not to understand, but to believe what God has said. But this awe-inspiring truth is a truth set forth throughout all scripture. Our time is fast slipping away, so I quote just two passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. In the Old Testament, in Proverbs 16, verse 4, we read, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. And in Romans 9, verses 10 through 13, Paul writes, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to, according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that, that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Reprobation, as well as election, is sovereign. But just as clearly does Scripture teach this in the text before us. The ground of a man's damnation is not God's eternal decree, but that man's rebellion against the living God. God's decree of reprobation is the determining cause behind man's destruction, and yet in the judgment, that man will be condemned according to his works, not as a reprobate, but as an impenitent, rebellious sinner, a rebel before God. And the wickedness of the reprobate will be clearly manifested when he is pointed once again to the Christ whom he rejected, that precious stone which he despised and over which he stumbled. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Back to Romans 9 verse 14. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? In conclusion, let us notice, beloved, the chief significance of that stone is always positive. It's not primarily a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but the cornerstone is, first of all, the chief cornerstone, elect, precious, upon which the church is established and, and God's covenant realized. So reprobation serves election. The chaff always serves the development of the kernel of wheat. 
the scaffolding, serves the building of God's house only to be taken down at the end. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 11, verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Is that the only reason God made them? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God is building his church upon the chosen, elect, precious, and immovable cornerstone. He that believeth on him shall never be ashamed. What a comfort to us who believe, who see the preciousness of this stone. What shall we say then? Who by nature are no different from those who stumble at the word being disobedient. Romans 11 verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Gracious Father, we humbly bow before thee in awe of the wonder that thou hast chosen us and called us unto thyself to see the preciousness of our cornerstone, who is Christ. Heavenly Father, continue to build and establish thy church even to the coming of the great day of our Lord. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.